0: Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members' channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else.
1: And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
2: This episode contains triggers some listeners may find distressing. And some of the conjecture of Adit's car journey with Rajesh, has been dramatised and cannot be substantiated. In 2002, Scott Siemens, Lyndon Hansen and George Bodecker Jr. were sailing together in the Caribbean. The three men were avid boaters, and Scott in particular had been trying for some time to come up with a boating shoe that was slip-resistant, comfortable and, crucially, odour-free. He partnered up with a Canadian company called Foam Creations and developed a brand new boating clog made out of a lightweight material called cross Light, which he asked Hansen and Bodecker Jr. to try out. The pair almost had to stifle their laughter when Scott first revealed his creation. It looked like a cross between a Birkenstock sandal and a piece of Swiss cheese. But they humoured their friend and tried it on their derisive first impressions soon turned to amazement at how well it performed in and out of the water. In fact, the shoe's ability to work both on land and in the sea was the origin of its amphibious name, the croc. The three friends quickly went into business together and soon they were selling thousands of pairs a month to gardeners, nurses and small children. But they didn't stop there. Eventually... Crocs became enormously popular with casual wearers, too. Almost overnight, they went from odd to iconic. Two decades later, Crocs Inc. is worth a cool $6.26 billion, and over 100 million pairs of them are sold every year. They have celebrity fans like Bad Bunny and Justin Bieber, and have even appeared on the catwalk at Paris Fashion Week. But what its creators could never have anticipated was that one day, the brightly coloured shoe would prove to be the vital clue that led authorities to catch the killer of a 13-year-old boy. My name is Sarah Henderson. I've always been fascinated by the world of forensic science the amazing ways in which crimes can be solved and the clues which can be found almost anywhere.
0: And my name is Tracy Alexander from Forensic Response UK. I've spent years inside these processes, searching for those clues. I've dedicated my career to using science to help the course of justice. And my work has ensured that hundreds of criminals have gone to prison and the wrongly accused go free. Together, we're
2: going to lift the lid on some of the most extraordinary cases from around the world.
0: We'll discover how, with the help of science, everyday items have become the key to catching a killer.
2: From What's The Story Sounds, this is Smoking Gun. The Red Croc Katvardi is a middle-class developing neighborhood situated on the eastern side of Bandra railway station, Mumbai. Young professionals, successful businessmen and wealthy families, including the Rankers, have made this suburb their home, attracted by the mix of premium high-rises and family dwellings, leafy streets and inner-city amenities. Jitendra had made his family's wealth through the diamond trade, a trade which seemed impervious to the peaks and troughs of other industries. Even in the hardest of economies, it seems people still want diamonds. And that meant his family, wife Chandrika, son Nishit, and his youngest, 13-year-old Aditya, or Adit for short, were well taken care of. On the 13th of May 2013... Jitendra left for work as usual, climbing into the car and pulling out of the drive to make the short journey to his office. He waved absent-mindedly as he pulled away from the house, and Adit waved back from the window. Adit was off school that day, so was entertaining himself at home. He wandered around the house for a while, took up residence in his room to play various games and flick through some comics. Some of his friends from Ketvardi would be free to play that afternoon, and he clock-watched intently, impatient to go outside. Adit was an active child. As a newborn, he'd had to undergo heart surgery when he was just four days old, which you'd never know from how much energy he had now. Even at his school, St Xavier's Boys Academy, he was known for never being able to sit still. A few hours after his dad's departure to work, at around 11 o'clock, the phone begins to ring. By this point, Adit is languishing on the sofa watching TV, willing the time to pass faster. Adit doesn't recognise the person on the other end of the line. a man who says he's a friend of his father's. He wants to get back to the sofa, so explains that his father isn't in and the man should call back later. Though only 30 minutes later, the phone rings again. And the same man is on the other end of the line. This time he tells Adit that his father had forgotten some keys at home and Adit needs to come outside to hand them over to him. The man sounds strange on the phone. He's speaking very fast so much so that it unnerves Adit. Tentatively, he moves the phone away from his ear and puts it down, shrugging to his mum as he does so. Some strange man, he says. But at 12.30pm, the phone rings for a third time. And this time, Adit's mum, Chandrika, picks up the phone. The man on the other end tells her the same story that he's trying to arrange a handover of some keys for Jichendra. Off the sofa, Chandrika tells her son, your father needs these keys. She instructs him to go around the corner to one of the local shops, a walk of five minutes maximum. There, someone would be waiting to collect the keys for Jichendra. Reluctantly, Adit peels himself off the sofa and puts his shoes on. He tells his mum he'll see her soon, as he hurries out the door, hoping to
0: conduct his errand quickly. Chandrika heads to the kitchen and begins cooking and cleaning out some cupboards. And she's so absorbed in her tasks that it's a while before she glances up at the clock and realises over an hour has passed. She hasn't heard Adit return home and goes to check the sofa in case she missed the sound of the door. He's not there. He's not in his room either. It's notable, but not completely odd. Adit might have bumped into a friend. Ketvadi is such a safe neighbourhood. Everyone knows everyone. So it doesn't cross her mind that anything is amiss. Simply a teenage boy losing track of time. Around an hour later, on the other side of town, Jitendra Ranka sits on his office chair, glancing out of the window. It's been a busy day. Invoices, phone calls, meetings, strategy, always someone asking him a question, demanding something from him. Life's tough at the top, he tells himself. The phone trills, and Jitendra presses his fingers into the nook of his eyes to release the tension building behind them. He takes a deep breath and answers. The voice on the other end of the line isn't familiar and says his name is Rakesh. He advises Jitendra to listen closely as he spells out the fact that he has kidnapped the diamond merchant's son and wants a ransom of 40,000 US dollars. There's a steady hum of white noise down the line as neither man speaks. And, after a few seconds... Jitendra slams down the receiver. Ludicrous prank call, he thinks, angrily. Though he has to admit that he is a little unnerved. He tries to refocus his attention back to the paperwork on his desk, but he can't concentrate. The tension behind his eyes is even more pronounced now. He picks up the phone to call home, then hangs it up, shaking his head, chastising himself. But the urge persists, and the next time he commits to the call, just to check in. Chandrika answers, and she also doesn't sound herself. She tells her husband about sending Adit out to deliver the keys for him, as per the caller's request. And in a wave of realisation, Jitendra knows immediately that something is very wrong. I'm coming home, he says, before racing from the office and into his car. When he arrives, his 28-year-old nephew, Himanshu, who lives just across the street from the family home, is waiting for him at the door. Chandrika is agitated, and had asked him to come over to reassure her. But from the grave expression on his face, it's obvious Himanshu is scared too, and trying to keep it under control. Jitendra searches the entire house, looks under every bed, in every cupboard, in the garage. He's trying to convince himself this is all a stupid prank. Or a mistake. But with no sign of his son, and the caller's words from earlier playing over and over in his head, he knows it's time to involve the police.
2: Jyotendra and Himanshu drive to the local VP Road police station in Mumbai and lodge an FIR or First Information Report, about Adit's kidnapping. It's not a unique report, but not a common one either, and the Mumbai Crime Branch immediately spring to action. The first 24 hours of any case like this is critical. No minute can be wasted. Officers are dispatched to the Ranker House to tap the phones, while others speak to the phone network provider to try and trace the calls to both the Ranker Household and Jitendra's office. Jitendra and Chandrika are told to stay at home, to wait by the phone, as it's likely the kidnapper will call back with further instructions. In India, an estimated 96,000 children go missing each year. And in 2021, the number of missing children deemed as kidnapped was over 28,000. While most reports of missing or abducted children are resolved within hours, many involve situations where a child goes missing permanently, or for an extended period of time. But experienced detectives know the usual modus operandi of kidnappers. In ransom cases, money is the main motivator, so investigators were sure the mystery caller from earlier would call back. After all... He wanted to get paid. For the next few hours, Adit's parents pace the living room. They try to drown out the sound of the clock and the thump of their hearts as they will the phone to ring. Morning dawns on the 14th of May, and no phone call has come, other than from concerned relatives, urged to stop blocking the line immediately. Chandrika is beside herself, sporadically bursting into tears and refusing to sleep. Jitendra is trying to be practical, and he decides to head back down to the police station to see if there has been any progress with the investigation, though he knows logically he would have been told. But he can't sit still any longer. Himanshu and his friend, 33-year-old Vrijesh, a local steel merchant, offers to drive Jitendra. He's in no state to be operating a vehicle. And the three of them climb into Vrijesh's car, a Honda city. Jitendra stares out of the window. He wishes the other two men would stop talking. He can't bear the noise. He focuses his attention on any mundane detail he can, honing in on the details to distract his mind telephone post, a street vendor, a metal roof. He does the same in the car. The scratched plastic on the back of the driver's seat. A newspaper in the footwell. And then, something else. Something he recognises. In the footwell, across from him, in the back of the car, is a pair of bright red Crocs the old plastic slippers many people wear in the house. The exact same kind and colour that his son had been wearing the day before when he left the
0: house. Jitendra's breath catches in his throat. Vrijes says his name, insistently. He'd obviously failed to answer a question. Desperate to not arouse suspicion, Jitendra tries to seem calm tries to emulate how he was acting before his eyes fell on that pair of red Crocs. What did the Crocs mean? Were his nephew and his friend the kidnappers? Did his nephew know anything about it, or was he oblivious? Could there be some other way those Crocs had ended up in the back seat? What were they going to do with him? Were they even planning on taking him to the police station, or was that a ruse? Jitendra's mind is racing as the car pulls up at the police station, but he steadies himself, thanks Himanshu and Rajesh for the lift, and trains his focus firmly on the glass doors of the police station, concentrating on putting one foot in front of the other until he arrives at them. Sitting across from the detective, the words spill out from Jitendra's mouth. They can't come out fast enough, and the investigators react just as rapidly. Officers are dispatched to track down Rajesh's car and within half an hour he and Himanshu are back at the station sitting in separate interview rooms. Moist and red around the neck and the forehead, both men are clearly spooked and over the next few hours they'll each fill in the blanks from the past day's events and a crime stopped in its tracks by a pair of red Crocs.
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
2: Himon Shu is a 28-year-old MBA graduate and metal trader. A smart and disciplined man, he's lived across the street from his uncle, his father's brother, for many years now. As part of the Marwari community, family relations are strong, often living in homes close to one another or working in generational family businesses. And the Ranka family are no exception. Being related to a renowned and successful member of the Ranka family... Imon Shu sometimes felt the pressure to live up to those expectations. And in recent years, that pressure had felt like a chokehold. He found gambling an effective release, particularly betting on IPL matches. IPL is the Indian Premier League, a 2020 cricket league contested by eight different teams ...representing eight popular Indian cities. It's a big deal to say the least. It's NFL times a hundred in terms of coverage and fandom. Himanshu had been a fan since he was a boy... ...around Adit's age. But for pleasure, not for gain. Betting or gambling is illegal in all parts of India. But this doesn't stop black market bookies placing odds... ...and opening bets on IPL matches Nearly $200 million is bet illegally per match But without regulation or transparency... ...it's a dangerous business... ...which can leave gamblers owing money to dangerous people As the months had gone by... ...him on shoe was losing far more money than he was winning And that effective release... ...had turned into a kind of primal desperation he and Rajesh had run up a tab of about 14,000 US dollars. Both had been desperately devising plans to get out of the mess they were in for weeks. And when Himanshu overheard his father talking about Uncle Jichendra's latest big money deal one night, his brain went into overdrive. His diamond merchant of an uncle had broken a deal worth hundreds of thousands and it was due to complete the following week, with an influx of cash arriving on the 13th of May. To him on Shu and Vidresh, the timing seemed like a gift, and together they hatched a plan which was foolproof, until things started to unravel
0: in a horrific way. The men passed the phone back and forth between one another. Neither wanted to go first. In the end, Rajesh spoke first, telling Adit that his father needed some keys urgently. But he didn't expect the boy to put the phone down. That wasn't part of the plan. They deliberated about next steps. Wait a while and try again. But second time around, Adit was still sceptical and once again, the line went dead. You try, Rajesh instructed Himanshu, who'd always been reluctant to call in case his cousin recognised his voice. A fear which intensified when his aunt Chandrika answered the call. Himanshu tried to modify his voice, praying she wouldn't notice it was him. And it seemed to work. He also managed to sell the story that he was an acquaintance of Jitendra's father, who needed some keys delivered urgently. When Adit ambled around the corner, keys swinging in his hand, he was surprised to bump into his cousin Himanshu's friend, Rajesh, a man he'd known for years. Rajesh was standing next to his car, and after a bit of casual banter, he suggested taking Adit for a joyride in the vehicle, a tantalising invitation for any teenage boy. Grainy black and white footage, later obtained by the police, shows the pair animatedly chatting and then added eagerly climbing into the passenger seat of the car. The men's days played out in parallel, each conducting their part of the sinister plan. As Rajesh babysat the boy, testing the speed of the car on the open road, Hibonshu stayed near home. He made sure to be seen by various family members, keen to establish an alibi for himself. Meanwhile, Vrajesh stopped at a public phone booth near Sion to make a ransom call to Jitendra. Police later found CCTV footage of him stopping at this very phone booth. Rajesh can be seen inside, and Adit is seen in the car a few feet away oblivious. Not long after, Himonshu was called over to his aunt's house, the dutiful nephew there to support his aunt, and his parents who were also sick with worry and confusion. But this is where the men's play began to unravel. Both had assumed Jitendra would readily hand over the money to recover his son. They hadn't considered he would involve the police. Himanshu tried to hide his blind and all-consuming panic as Jitendra, having checked the house, phoned the police. Panic which continued to escalate as time ticked by, and when he realised the Mumbai crime branch had immediately become involved. Himanshu texted Vrijesh, It's all going wrong. The police are involved. And as Vrijesh revved the car through the streets of Mumbai, He knew there was no way out for him. If he returned Adit home, the boy would identify him immediately and he would take the full flack. He'd made the ransom call after all. He wasn't family. There'd be no protection or lenience for him. Rajesh pulled up in front of a cigarette and pan shop telling Adit he needed to nip inside to buy something. The boy was happy enough, still enjoying the novelty of the car and the unexpected direction the day had taken. CCTV shows Vrijesh walk through the shop doors. It shows him browsing the aisles. And eventually it shows him selecting an item from a shelf and heading to the counter to purchase it. That item is a knife, which Vrijesh puts in his pocket as he heads out of the shop and back towards the car. As the car drives out of Mumbai, where the buildings start to get sparser and the roads longer and less populated, Adit is starting to get fidgety. The car is cool for sure, but his friends would have become free a few hours ago now and he wants to get home, keen not to miss them. Rajesh tells him to relax and that they're just going home a different route. But the boy notices that his cousin's friend's demeanour has changed. His jaw is tense, his knuckles tight over the steering wheel. Rajesh pulls the car over in an isolated spot, just off the Mumbai-Poon Expressway near Panvel. There's no one around. Adit assumes his friend needs to go to the toilet. And then, when Vrijesh tells the boy to step out of the car, assumes that he has something cool to show him. What happens next happens quickly. The flash of a blade in the blink of an eye before Adit can even register what's happening. Vrijesh, a man he thinks is his friend, has slashed his arms and wrists, which begin bleeding profusely. Adit is hit over the head. Though whether that's with a fist or a weapon isn't known. rajesh pants heavily. He thinks he's going to be sick. From the boot of his car, he lifts a can of gasoline and douses the boy's body before striking a match. He watches the flames lick higher in his rearview mirror as he drives away from the scene, still swallowing the bile rising in his throat. A post-mortem will later suggest that Adit was still alive when he was set alight.
2: Back in Ketvardi, the police are stealthily following the lead provided by the Red Crocs. They don't want to spook Vrijesh, especially if Adit is still alive and being held somewhere. But behind the scenes, they're circling, trying to establish the man's movements on the day of the 13th. Detectives use cell-masked technology to try and pinpoint the locations of Rajesh's phone and... As well as geographical locations, that technology reveals that during the day of the kidnap, Rajesh is in almost constant communication with him on Shoe, whom, it's looking increasingly unlikely, was oblivious to the kidnap of his cousin. With the crocs, the cell tower locations and the mobile phone call logs, police have enough to bring both men in for questioning. Just two days after Adit left the house, to conduct a chore at the behest of his mum. Under the glare of interrogation lamps, two sets of detectives quiz for Jesh and him on shoes separately. They apply careful pressure, the good cop, bad cop routine, artfully squeezing the interviewees to get the truth and to hopefully discover where Adit is being held. As the interviews progress, it becomes clear that Vrijesh is the one cracking under the pressure. He alternately trembles, cries or stares at the wall. And eventually, after many hours, he breaks down. He tells officers what's happened, what he's done. And tragically, where he's left Adit's its body near the highway. Patrol officers were deployed immediately to verify Vrijesh's confession, hoping against hope it wasn't true. But the grim discovery under the underpass confirmed everyone's deepest fears. Vrijesh and Himanshu were arrested for the unlawful kidnapping and murder of Adit Ranka. They were held in jail while prosecutors prepared for trial, a process which took over four years. Eventually, in a Mumbai courtroom, prosecutor Kalpana Shavan fought hard to ensure both men were convicted. But the material evidence against Himanshu was thin. His defence leaned into the plausible deniability of his involvement. No one could prove what was discussed on the calls between Vrijesh and Himanshu. Himanshu wasn't there when Adit got in Vrijesh's car. He wasn't there when Adit was murdered and he denied that the two ever discussed killing Adit. Following the trial, the court were unable to find conclusive evidence against him on Shu, and he was acquitted of all charges. On hearing the verdict, he slumped to the floor and sobbed uncontrollably. He also thanked the court, and also his wife, sister, and his parents, who, having chosen to support him, Smiled with relief. The outcome for Rajesh was a very different story. Forensics placed him at the scene and placed Adit in his car. There was CCTV camera footage showing the accused and his victim together. The owner of the pawn shop testified to having seen the boy in the car at the time Rajesh purchased the knife. There was the confession and, of course, the pair of red crocs Chitendra had spotted in the back seat. He was given a life sentence, a minimum jail term of 30 years. And the lives of the Ranker family would never be the same again. All victims of completely senseless crime, motivated by greed and self-importance.
0: In 2014, just a year after Adit's disappearance, Jitendra Ranka passed away from natural causes. Though, according to his wife Chandrika, he just couldn't bear the loss of his son. It had affected him deeply in a way that he could not recover from. Adit's mother Chandrika remains heartbroken, but chose not to appeal the verdict about her nephew, who still lives across the street from her home, a home which is now much quieter. Adit's classmates and friends, the boys he never got to play out with on that fateful day, remember him fondly. And every year, Adit's school holds memorial to honour him, issuing an award in his name which is given to the best athlete in the school. Smoking Gun is a What's the Story
2: original podcast series. It's narrated by me, Sarah Henderson. And by
0: me, Tracey Alexander. The series is supported by Forensic Response UK. Our work promotes the international fight to improve forensic techniques, to share ideas and develop the crime-solving scientific advances of the future. If you've enjoyed this episode, please
2: give it a rating and review and help to spread the word. You can listen to a new episode of Smoking Gun every week wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.
0: If you want to listen to all episodes right now, you can find them completely ad-free on our subscription channel, What's the Story Crime? On there, you'll also get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus interviews led by me, where I speak to some of the most experienced and skilled forensic scientists from around the world and find out more about what they do. Those interviews are only available on What's the Story Crime? There's also a whole range of brilliant true crime
2: content all made by the same team. You can check out The Missing with more than 60 episodes all about long-term missing people which invites you to try and help solve the case. You'll also find exclusive series like Jigsaw, true crime investigations like 900 Degrees and incredible stories told over several parts. Whatever you're into, if you enjoy listening to Smoking Gun, we're sure you'll find your next must-listen podcast on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just search for What's the Story Crime, subscribe, and you'll get all your favourite shows ad-free. For listeners on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or any other platform, all you need to do is click the link in our show notes or visit www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Your subscription helps to ensure we can keep making more of the content you love and it costs just £3.99 per month.